Amen. Thank you, Tammy. So good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, thank you for coming and being with us this morning. Okay, so this doesn't happen very often, but it happened this week uh, where I tried more than one time to, uh, to do what I'd planned to do as far as the preaching this morning, and I just hit with a brick, I hit a, felt like I hit a brick wall, and I changed, uh, changed directions two or three times uh, because it, in many ways it was a hard week, and uh, there's lots of hard things that many of you are going through and that some of us are going through, and I just could not get my footing and so you just need to take this little insert and kind of like, don't throw it on the floor because somebody has to pick it up, but just set it aside because it be no good for you this morning, okay? I apologize uh, uh, for that. Uh, but when I have weeks like that, uh, and when I have days like that, when I have seasons like that, I seem to find myself uh, going back to Psalm 23. Uh, and so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to go, I'm going to ask you if you, so it's going to be on the screen behind me as we read together, but if you want to get a pew Bible, you can, or if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to read from Psalm 23, and then from uh, from Romans chapter 8, just three verses there in Romans chapter 8, and uh, and then we're going to talk about that, because that's, that is where my heart settled, and I don't know what else to do when I stand before you, but to talk about the things that God's talking to me about my heart. Okay, does that make sense? So hopefully we're following the Spirit this morning, which I think is what we're doing. So let's read uh, together from Psalm 23, this beautiful psalm. We're going to focus on verse 6, but we're going to read the whole psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And here's our verse. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then from Romans 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Okay, so what do you do when you're going through a tough time? What do you do when you have weeks like that, you know, just confusion or whatever it might be? Or, you know, when, when you're going through something like we're facing as a church, where one of our, our daughter churches is having to come back and be with us. I'm going to be with them next week, and I'm going to talk about the same thing next week with them, that I, but I thought it would be good for us to hear as well. You know, life is a journey. It's a story. There are acts and scenes. Life is not a series of random and unconnected events. We're going somewhere. We're being led. And isn't that comforting? It is to me. We didn't end up here by accident. We've been led right here, wherever here is today for you. Right here, every twist and turn has been orchestrated by our good shepherd, who is by, by God, who is our good shepherd, the psalm says. Christians call this providence. We believe that the Lord, our shepherd, has gone ahead to prepare our days and that he has a plan for every one of us. He leads us out, he calls back to us, and we follow. And this is fine, you know, most days, as long as things are going well. But what about when it's hard? What about when the way becomes treacherous? Well, the trick is to learn the lesson of the old hymn by William Cowper, William Cooper. It's spelled Cowper, pronounced Cooper, whose life uh, has been described by one historian as one long accumulation of pain. 
And here's the text. He says, God moves in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And maybe you can finish it behind a frowning providence. There hides a smiling face. That's a very good commentary on this Psalm 23. And the theology of the song is, well, the first thing, God is working on a plan that ultimately ends in good, but it is not always obvious. His way of doing the good thing he says is doing is oftentimes hidden and unseen. And then there are the storms that we will have to endure, and those are very obvious. But the truth is that even the storms are mercy, and they bring blessing because behind it all, as Cooper says, is the smiling face of God. And faith, then, is viewing whatever storm you're facing through the lens of God's smiling face and not the other way around. That's the key, and that's what I want to talk about. You see, verse 6 says that life is a journey that ends in heaven. Do you see that? But we don't have to wait until we get there to experience the very best of what heaven will be like. Psalm 23 is often read at funerals and gravesides, I suppose, because verse 6 carries the idea of heaven with it. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist ends, David ends with that. However, the text hints that this is something more than just the promise of heaven out there in the future. Literally, the phrase there means, I will dwell in the house of the Lord to the length of days. And it means something like, I will live with God. I will abide with God until the very end of my life. And that fits with the larger teaching of the Bible, which is that our destination is, in fact, heaven but we don't have to wait until we get there to have eternal life. First time I ever heard someone say that was reading Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy years ago. And the argument that he makes in the book was that the adjective eternal there in, in the phrase eternal life didn't refer to a duration of life, but rather to a quality of life. So when you read this then is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, according to Dallas Willard, is an eternal kind of living that we can enter into right now. We can know God and experience life uh, through that knowing, and that changes the way that you live. And so Psalm 23 is a description of this eternal kind of living. Notice all the things it says here. Lying down amidst all of life's fury, drinking from living water and being contented, wandering off from time to time, but always finding your way back home because of God's pursuing grace, walking through dark valleys, but without fear. Because there's a sense of God's presence that never leaves you. Feasting on the abundance of his goodness, even in times of leanness. The eternal kind of life is knowing God, abiding in him, making your home in his love for you as long as you walk on this earth. That's what the psalm is ultimately about. And what the verses in Romans 8 are ultimately about as well. And so as we look at these two places, I want to do this this morning. I want to just see the doctrine together. The real doctrine of, of Psalm 23, verse 6. And then three applications of that doctrine. And then if we have time at the end, with just one final kind of thought about where I think the psalm leaves us as we contemplate our lives. Okay, so the doctrine, just one doctrine, three applications, and then a final thought. So let's just look together at the doctrine. And in the Bible, doctrine is at times a matter of sentences and phrases and even words. And that's true here as well. So I want to pay attention to the words in verse 6, goodness and mercy. Uh, these are attributes of God, but David does something unique here. He personifies them. So for the people of faith, goodness and mercy are not ideas. They're not, they're not theological concepts. They're not, you know, philosophical 
you know, sound waves out there in the universe. They are like people you walk with everywhere you go. You experience them. Tov and chesed are those two words. I have a friend who had two beautiful golden retrievers, and they named them Tov and Hesed because they said, Tov and Hesed just follow us everywhere we go. And I love that. But what do these words mean? What, did they, what, what are these words? We're going to actually take them in reverse order. So look there with me. Let's start with the word mercy. It's the Hebrew word chesed, most often translated steadfast love because it combines the idea of love and loyalty or love and sacrifice. So it, it is describing enduring love, stubborn love. God's love for us has no beginning and therefore no end. There are no fluctuations in his love. He doesn't get tired of loving us when we're being particularly awful. He doesn't have any less energy to love us. He, he doesn't love us more on some days than others. He doesn't act on his feelings about us. He acts on his commitments to us always with no regard for our response. That's what that word means. His love for us has nothing to do for, with our love for him. It's one-way love. It's pointed towards us. It's Calvary love. The word means that God loves us to his own hurt, which, of course, we see most clearly in the cross, where God himself in the person of Jesus died to give us life, his death for our life, his sadness for our joy, his suffering for our flourishing. Jesus befriended me when I was his enemy. He died doing good to me when I wanted nothing to do with him. There was no reciprocity of love in that exchange. He did 100% of the loving, and I did 0%, and even that is being generous. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine being in a relationship with a person like that? Can you imagine being married to a person like that? Can you imagine a friend who would love you like that? Well, you can. See, that's what the psalmist says. You can walk with chesed. And because God is merciful, he is always in everything working together good. That's that second word there. Do you see it? Goodness and mercy. Follow me. And goodness is the Hebrew word tov. And it means something that is good or beautiful or pleasant or appropriate. Uh, the best way I could translate it is it's, it refers to a place of flourishing. And so the teaching is that God, because he's always loving me, is always leading me to places of flourishing. Even when the sky looks like a Florida summer afternoon thunderstorm. Even in the most destroying, saddest losses and disappointments. It is what God's doing all the time. So Psalm 23 forces us to confront our wrong definition of what is good. Good doesn't mean easy. Good doesn't mean God's job is just there to give me everything I think I want or need or deserve from him. It doesn't mean comfortable. It doesn't even mean safe. Those are American ideals. Good means flourishing. And what is flourishing? Well, according to the Bible, it's knowing God. It's living with a sense of his presence. It's being a person of deep character and conviction and being engaged in the mission of spreading the gospel throughout the world. And that doesn't have anything at all to do with ease or comfort or safety or with things going just the way I think they're supposed to. The promise in these verses is not that God will make your life easy. No, it's that he will be with you. That that's all you really need. Do you believe that? That he will be with you and that that's all you really need. Nothing comes into your life that doesn't come from him. He is the good shepherd in verse 5 who is preparing tables for us. I love that image, don't you? Every day is a day made by God to fill our lives with good, even the bad days. So Philip Keller, who himself was a shepherd and wrote a commentary on Psalm 23, he talked about the shepherd's preparation for 
preparing the tablelands uh, the, for the sheep to go and graze on. And he describes having to go through the pasture looking for poisonous plants and picking them out by hand, one by one, so the ship, sheep don't eat them and get sick, and looking for signs of predators to keep the sheep safe, and cleaning out water holes to make it easy for them to drink, so that everything, when he brings them into the pasture, everything is prepared and ready for them to just flourish and be careless in his care. And David said, that's, that, that's exactly how God orders your life. He says, Hesed love is always bringing about goodness for us. And the two are following us wherever we go. Goodness and mercy, follow me all the days of my life. They're chasing after us. That's what that word means. We're being hunted, but not by a predator that wants to devour us, but by our God in heaven who's desperate to get his hands on us so that he can fill our lives with good things. He's chasing us down, which of course means what? That we're on the run. And that's the real problem. That's the real problem we face in life. We wrongly think God is the one we need to get away from because he's not trustworthy and I need to keep control of my life. We don't know or we've forgotten or we've allowed life to make us so cynical and um, unbelieving towards him that it's goodness and mercy that are trying to catch up with us. We're all prodigals, the bad and the good alike. We've all left home. That's what the Bible means by sin. But the sin underneath all sin, the reason why we're running The reason why we're running is that we don't trust the Father's heart. And because we don't trust his heart, what we begin to do is we begin to look at our life and look for reasons why we're right about not trusting him. Psalm 23 is the antidote to that. But you see, the temptation is that when something bad happens, you read this psalm and you say, that's not true. That's a bunch of baloney. But that is reading Psalm 23 in light of your pain. It's reading this psalm in light of your loss, in light of your bad circumstances, rather than reading your pain and your loss and your circumstances in light of the truth of what David is telling us about God here. It's allowing your pain to affect your theology instead of letting your theology impact your pain. And one is unbelief, the other is faith. And we have to know, we have to know, you have to know how prone your heart is towards unbelief. How how prone your heart is to see the frowning providence and miss the smiling face. So you got to do what David does here. He's talking to his heart. He's taking the truth and he's using it to reason with his heart when he's tempted to not keep faith with God. And it's the truth of what he has to say to us here that pierces through the clouds to see the goodness and mercy behind them. And where you really see David doing this is in this one little word. I told you, doctrine is a matter of phrases and even words sometimes. And so not only Hesed and Tov here, but but pay attention to the word surely there. Do you see it? Surely goodness and mercy Follow me all the days of my life. Surely, goodness and mercy. If you have an ESV Bible, there should be a footnote there. If you look down to the bottom, you refer to it, you'll see that the force of that word is, surely is not a great translation. Really what the word means is only. And that's significant. Only goodness and mercy, David says. That's why he says surely. He's going through something really hard, and he says, surely even this is goodness and mercy, because God only does goodness and mercy. Everything God does is goodness and mercy. Every circumstance I find myself in, every, even the valley of the shadow of death is goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy in everything and nothing else. See, that's the key. That whatever you go through, no matter how crushing, no matter how awful it is in the moment, it is goodness and mercy because all things come from God. And the only thing God does for his people is goodness and mercy. Nothing else. Always, only goodness and mercy. That should get an amen. 
okay? Now, that is not just generally true. We need to slow down for just one minute before we come to the next. It is true, especially for those who have staked their everything on Jesus. Romans 8, for example, if you turn there, says that all things work together for good, yes, but it qualifies that. It says, for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, it is always only goodness and mercy. If you're not a Christian, it's still goodness and mercy. But it's not only goodness and mercy. There's also judgment and wrath because of your sins. That is, until you come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, saving faith is believing that on the cross, Jesus took the judgment and wrath of God that is rightly yours because of your sin. And if he took your judgment, if he took the justice of God that was coming at you, then all that is left for you, for the one who believes, is in fact goodness and mercy. So believe. And that's the doctrine. God is always acting towards us in goodness and mercy. Everything he does is goodness and mercy. So no matter what you're going through, and even what we're going through as a church, it is goodness and mercy. It's from the hand of the good shepherd, and that is good. Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached his first sermon when he was 18 years old, and the topic was Christian happiness. And he was talking about how Christians should be content and at peace no matter what is happening in their lives. And so if you think about when we turn to Psalm 23, uh, it's usually in very chaotic, painful times to find some kind of comfort, some kind of peace, because that is the theme of the psalm, that God is a good shepherd. He's always taking care of our needs, always right by our side, no matter how dark the road, always protecting us from harm and filling our lives with good things for us to enjoy. So we can be content. Think about how the psalm begins. The Lord is my shepherd. What's the next phrase? Shall not want. So we can be not wanting. Even in want, but lying down contentedly in his care, that's eternal life. That's the eternal kind of life that we can have even now. That's what heaven will be like, but we don't have to wait until we get there to experience it. And so in that sermon, Jonathan Edwards said that there are three applications of the truth. That if we apply it this way, if you take the truth and you really work on your heart with it in these particular ways, then you will begin to experience the eternal kind of life. Now, you've heard me say this before. But it bears repeating. Here are the three applications of the truth from Psalm 23 and then also from the Romans 8 passage, just if I could summarize them for you. Three things. First, all of our bad things will work out for good. Secondly, all of our good things cannot be taken away from us. And thirdly, all of our best things are yet to come. Let's talk about each of those for just a minute. First, all of our bad things will work out for good. So we turn to Romans 8, 28. And I realize this is a very painful verse for a lot of people because life just doesn't feel like this, but we still have it here in the scriptures and I have to be confronted with it. But Paul says, we know. So you got to know. That's the point. You got to know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, the text is clear that terrible things happen to people who love God. I mean, many Christians implicitly teach and most Christians implicitly believe that things go better with Jesus. That is not necessarily the case. And it's not what Romans 8 or Psalm 23 promise. Don't forget the valley of the shadow of death. No one is exempt from that. This doesn't mean that life just is a, is a, 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 you know, a bucket of rainbows. Think about David's life. We've been reading about him in, uh, in community Bible reading. I hope you're reading with us. Uh, think about David. In Psalm, excuse me, in Psalm, in 1 Samuel 17, he conquers Goliath. That's one chapter, and it go, it's great. He's the champion. But in the very next verse, in the very next chapter, 
He's on the run from Saul. And then from chapter 18 all the way to the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, he has no home. His life is being threatened constantly. Uh, and it's just he's living in caves with all, you know, away from his family. And then Saul dies and he's made king. And 2 Samuel 1 through 5, there are bloody wars to establish his kingdom and he loses friends and it's really bad. And then you come to 2 Samuel 6 through 10, five chapters there, and they're pretty good. He wins some battles. He establishes his kingdom, he dances before the ark, all these kinds of things. But then, right after chapter 10, chapter 11, which is where he sins by committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then in chapter 13, Ammon and Tamar happen. Chapters 14 through 20, it is Absalom, his son, who revolts against them. So there's 40 chapters about David in First and Second Samuel. Only six of them are full of anything good. Now, I did the math. That means about 13% of what we have on record about David's life would we look at and say, well, that went pretty well. Everything else is just chaotic. Everything's falling apart. He, he's just, he's on the run. It's terrible. And yet he is the one who's saying, surely, only, always, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. We don't believe that things just ought to go right. If things go right, God is at work. If there is good, it's God doing it. Everything, everything that is good is a miracle of grace. Yet that's what Romans 28, 8, 28 and Psalm 23 teach us, that God is in the redemptification business. And the stories that he writes, like the stories we tell, end in resurrection because that is our gospel. Jesus Christ is not dead. On the third day, he was raised again. And we live in a new creation where resurrection is impossible. And that means that that's what God is in the business of doing. Now, that doesn't mean that you're spared hard things. Neither does it mean that the bad things are really good things in disguise. You know, it's just there's a silver lining in every gray cloud or whatever, whatever platitudinous things we try to talk to our hearts about. No, they're terrible. They're terrible. Ter there are plenty of days. There are plenty of terrible days full of heartache and pain and loss. And they're terrible. But in the totality, in the scope of eternity, in the whole of everything, Paul says God is taking every bad thing and turning it for good. Now, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. This bad thing is going to lead to this good thing. And we don't always get a view of the good that comes from the bad. We're not promised that either. We are just promised that ultimately, at the end of days, that we will look back at all that God has done with us and say, just as he did in Genesis, it was good. Romans 8.28 also teaches that the really bad stuff is not the storms we go through. The really bad stuff is pride, selfishness, hardness of heart, self-deception, and the belief that you can do life without God. Those are the things that can really kill you. Those are the things that can really kill your soul. Those are the only things that can hurt you in the totality of your life. So when God brings you into a hard time, what he's doing is he's letting the not-so-bad thing come in to cure you of the really bad thing that can ultimately destroy you. Isn't that great? Isn't that hard? So you got to know that all of our bad things, the promise here is that they will ultimately, at the end of all days, work out in the totality of all things for good. Now, secondly, not only are we promised that our bad things will work out for good, but secondly, we're promised that our good things can never be taken away from us. I've already said this, but uh, Psalm 23, 6 and Romans 8, 28, you, you can't rip them out of the context of the rest of the Bible. 
And so if you look carefully at Romans 8, if you have it open in, in your Bible there, and I'm sorry, again, we didn't get it printed for you, but at Romans 8.28 and 8.29, for example, go together. Everybody quotes Romans 8.28. Nobody quotes Romans 8.29, and that's a big problem. Because what is the good that everything is working out towards? Well, it's not a better life. It's a better you. I mean, what makes for a good life is not new circumstances, but a new you. For you to be better equipped to face whatever comes. What we need most is good character, not good circumstances. Which is why verse 28 and verse 29 have to go together. Because verse 29 is the explanation for verse 28 and for Psalm 23.6. We know this because of the four there at the beginning of that verse. And that preposition connects the two verses together. So the good that God is working all things out towards is the good of being conformed to the image of Jesus. In other words... God's great goal in your life is to give you all of Jesus' beauty, all of his greatness, all of his compassion and courage, all of his intimacy with the Father, all of his wisdom. I mean, Jesus was so full of life. He never pouted. He never sulked. He never backed down. He never cowered when it got hard. And God is on a mission to make you like that too. That's what he's doing in everything he's doing in your life. And here's the great news. The hard stuff can't take that away. Just the opposite. It's God's tool, the Bible says. Suffering can't take from, can take from you. It sure can, but it can't take the most important things away. It is the chisel in God's hands. And God does not promise that you will not suffer. You won't find that in the Bible. In fact, it's much better. He promises that when you suffer it will cause you to become more like Jesus. The suffering will drive you deeper into his love, into his plan for your life. It will be the very thing that gives you what you need most, that indestructible joy and peace and hope that is, that is what leads to the eternal kind of life, if you will let it. And so let me ask a question. This is a hard question. But if you were given a choice, good circumstances, so a good job, plenty of money, a nice house, family and friends, but... No peace, no joy, no godliness. Or hard circumstances. But as a result, deep peace, deep joy, love all around you, knowing God deeply, a godly life, which would you choose? Romans 8.29 tells us what the good is that everything that comes into your life is driving towards. It's shaping you into the kind of person who can deal with suffering and not and loss and soar through it, which is a great quality to have. Why? Because there's no way to escape this broken, fallen world than to go through painful loss and heartache. What we need is the ability to face it and soar. And people of faith that I know who have suffered the most, have become more beautiful because of it. They come to know God and enjoy him more. They enjoy life more. They live more in the few years after a cancer diagnosis than in all the years before. Don't you see? You're on a collision course with greatness. It may be a million years. Some of you, it may be a million years till you get there, okay? Me, it'll probably be a billion years till I get there. That's what Romans 8, 29 means. The bad thing that can happen to you can't keep you from that. In fact, all they do is speed up the process. You become that great person you're meant to be faster on this side of heaven. 
which means there's more enjoyment for you quicker, both in this life and the life to come. You can come to know him more, and knowing him is eternal life. Every bad thing brings you more of heaven in this life. And your life in this life becomes more and more like your life will be in the next, because not only can all of our bad things work together for good, but all of our good things, the best things, can never be taken away from us. Well, the good things. And then lastly, the best part is that even though those things are true, there's one other thing here, and that's all of our best things are yet to come. Remember in verse 6, goodness and mercy are on our heels, driving us toward heaven. And here in Romans chapter 8, all those who are predestined are called, and those who are called are justified, and those who are justified are also glorified. And so the end of those verses is glory, because the end of our day is, is glory as well. The house of the Lord, where we will dwell with him forever, heaven is our true home. Heaven is the place where all the hopes and dreams we have in this life will be realized, where the joys we experience temporarily in this life They are stale, moldy bread in comparison with the feast that we will have forever there, where all of our havings, our wantings here, there all of our wantings will become havings, and we will finally have the life we've always wanted, the one we've been made for. All that God is doing with us in this life is getting us ready for the next. Every heartache is like a little seed that falls into the ground, and in heaven it becomes a harvest of joy. So the glory there will be so great it will make all the heartache here small and passing in comparison. That is our future. Now, that's the way you work on your heart, especially when the storm clouds roll in. You say, God is working this bad thing out and turning it for good for me. There's loss, but I'm gaining so much more. The really great stuff, I'm getting more of that, and the best is yet to come. And you keep saying that over and over again to your heart until you start to believe it. God is working the bad thing out and turning it in good for me and the people that I love. There's loss, but I'm gaining so much more than I'm losing here. And the really good stuff, I'm actually getting more of that. And the best, the best is still to come. And you keep... Again, over and over and over again, until it starts to drive the reality of God's goodness and mercy home to your heart. That's the way you live by faith. That's the way you view, that's what it means to view whatever the circumstances are you're going through, through the lens of your faith and not the other way around. Now, one final thought. Just an encouragement. It's a play on words in verse, in verse 6 of... Uh, Psalm 23, I actually think it's a mishandling of the text to say that this is what the text means, but I think it's a really helpful application. Philip Keller, who I've already mentioned, at the end of his little book on Psalm 23, he begins to reflect on goodness and mercy shall follow me or come behind me. And here's what he says, it is proper to ask myself, is this outflow of goodness and mercy for me to stop and stagnate in my life? Is there no way in which it can pass on through me to benefit others? He writes, there's a positive practical aspect in which my life in turn should be one whereby goodness and mercy follow me and in my footsteps for the well-being of others. Just as God's goodness and mercy flow to me all the days of my life, so goodness and mercy should follow me and should be left behind me as a legacy to others wherever I may go. Now he's a shepherd. He makes the point that the flock of sheep that is properly managed actually benefits the land they live on. Their manure acts as fertilizer. They eat all sorts of weeds that would otherwise take over the pasture. And so if you have a piece of ravaged land that needs to be cleaned up and restored, put sheep on it that are shepherded well. And in two or three years, that old ragged piece of land will be restored because the sheep will take the poverty and the waste and produce flourishing in abundance. Now he goes on, he says, goodness and mercy have followed my flocks. They always left behind them something worthwhile, productive, beautiful, and beneficial to both themselves and others and me. Where they had walked, there flowed fertility and weed-free land. Where they had lived, there remained beauty 
in abundance. And the question now comes to me pointedly, is this true of my life? Do I leave blessing and benediction behind me? Do I leave a trail of sadness or of gladness behind? Do I leave behind peace in lives or turmoil? Forgiveness or bitterness? Contentment or conflict? Joy or frustration? It's a great question. What about you? What's left in the places you've lived because you've lived there? When you come to the end of your days, what will be left in the lives of the people you love because they knew you? What about our church? There will be a day when there will be no more Redeemer in Winter Haven. What will people think of when they remember our church? Will the city be sad that we're no longer here? There's only one way to become a person who leaves goodness and mercy in their wake everywhere they go. You have to stop running and be overtaken by the goodness and mercy of God for you and turn toward him instead in repentance and faith, embracing whatever he brings because you know it comes from his hand and the only thing that comes from him is goodness and mercy. That's what happened to David, and that's what he's singing about. He knew. He knew the goodness and mercy of the Lord, his shepherd. All the days in his hiding out from Saul in the caves in the wilderness in Engedi, in the darkest moments of shame because of his sin with Bathsheba, in the heartbreak of his son's betrayal, he knew in all of those terrible things that all of God's ways were goodness and mercy. Do you? You know, the words of that song that Molly sang a little while ago reverberate. It may be too good to be understood but it's not too good to be true. So let's pray together. So, Father, we would say to you, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief because this is a fragile, this is a fragile belief for us. It's hard for us to imagine in light of all of the sadness we have to endure that these words that we read here could be true. And so help us. Help us to, help us to believe. Uh, I know there's some of us that have come this morning with just hard hearts because life has just beaten us to smithereens. And we would lay uh, a charge at your feet. And I just can't imagine the way that breaks your heart because you say to us very clearly here that what you desire more than anything else for us is a place of flourishing. That, that the, the merciful heart that you have for us just overflows with pity and and love, particularly in the things that hurt us the most. And you are so committed to our good that you have come in the person of Jesus to take upon yourself our sadness and pain and loss and to bear the broken heart that is ours so that the world might be mended and you're working that out. It's just taking time. And so forgive us that we would ever question, that we would ever test you and, and, and lay charges against you. Heal us, Father. Give us, give us hearts that would turn back to you in repentance of faith this morning. So where we can't feel it, help us to sing one another to the reception of these truths in our hearts. Give us great faith to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here are these words again that we read yesterday in a psalm. This is so amazing to me. The Lord, the Lord gives us these words. David writes, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This I know, God is for me, and God whose word I praise, and the Lord whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Amen? And so, even in the weightiness and the, you know, of that song, such a weighty song, uh, but in the recognition that we can sing that in faith, 
It can put a smile on your face. So let uh, the reality of living under the smile of God, behind a frowning providence, there, there hides a smiling face. Once you see the smiling face of God shining, even in the darkest days of your life, it'll put a smile on your face too. So put a smile on your face and rejoice in the good news of this benediction as you go today now. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.